Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we're taking a break from our series, though it really is an application of seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Ephesians 3, we're going to look at verses 8 through 21 as our scripture reading, but this is not, we're not doing this text in terms of expository preaching. Normally, if you're, if you're a guest here, normally the main, the words and goal of the passage controls the words and goal of the sermon, and usually it's one passage, but today we're going to look at several passages because we're going to think about why the local church is central to our lives. And so here's a good passage just on the centrality of the local church. I want you to pay particular attention to verse 10, even though we're going to read verse 8 to um, 13. Hear God's Word. This is on page 1037 in your pew Bible, and I'm going to be using a pew Bible today because we're jumping all over the place. I'll tell you the page numbers as we jump from passage to passage. Ephesians 3, verse 8. Paul writes, the grace, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so, God's, so that God's multifaceted wisdom, I want you to pay attention to this, we're talking about the church today. This riches, this proclamation of the gospel, the riches of Christ, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church. God's multifaceted wisdom would be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to His eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ, in Him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. They are your glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us this morning. We pray that your word would dwell in us richly. We pray that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner being through your spirit, so, and that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. We pray that being rooted and grounded in your love, that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints around the world and in heaven now what is the length and width and height and depth of your love, and that we would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we here would be filled with the fullness of all that you are. Fill us with your fullness, we pray. Open our eyes, soften our hearts. Give us a holy and happy conviction about your grace to us in Jesus Christ and in his local church. Help us, we pray now, because apart from you, we'll waste our time and do nothing. We pray particularly for our friends here who are not Christian, that you would give them an understanding of Jesus this morning, and that they would see your love and kindness, and that you would open their hearts to receive you. In Jesus' name, amen. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We, we talked about that last week. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Every Christian should seek first the kingdom of God. Before you, before you do things for your work, before you do things for society, for your government, for your family, the kingdom of God is first because God is first. 
God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule over you and through you into this world is the priority of your life. And if that is the priority, you seek that first. You order everything else in your life under and for God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule in Christ over you and through you in this world. That's our mission. That's what our church has been about for 70 years. And the reason why our church has been about this is because God calls us to make disciples of all nations. That's what Seeking First God's Kingdom is. It's discipling each other, the neighbors, and the nations. That's how we channel God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule over us and through us. And when you do that, a church forms, and a church gets healthy, and a church plants other churches. And the reason why that's important, according to Ephesians 3.10, is because God's multifaceted wisdom, the wisdom of God, the glory of God, the love of God is seen in the local church. I mean, just look around at this group of people here, the members of our church, different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different generations, different cultures, different stages of life, different interests, different hobbies, different expertise, different weaknesses, different burdens, different sins that have oppressed us, and yet we're all here as one family. Really? One family? How does this happen? The grace of God, the wisdom of God, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ makes people who would not otherwise be family, one family in Him. The church is the display of the wisdom of God. The church is the display of the grace of God. The church is the display of the gospel of God. And so as we seek first God's kingdom, we do it as a church family. So let me try in our, in the, to, to introduce the sermon. Let me, let me just take some time here. It is our 70th anniversary. So I want to just give you the story of the church, of this church. But I have to give it to you kind of in the story of church history, and I kind of have to do that in the story of the Bible. So let's give me, let me give you the story of the world briefly, if I could, in a few minutes here, by way of introduction. Okay, so the story of God, seeking first God's kingdom, it, it's, it's the rule and reign of God in His world. Okay, that's, that's the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God over and through His people in His world. And it started, so let's, let's just, let me just tell you the story of the Bible with a few Ps. The kingdom of God planted in the Garden of Eden, so was, and this is not the sermon outline, so this is just introduction, so don't worry about taking notes. If you, if you want to, you can, but I'm going to go fast. It's the kingdom of God planted in the Garden of Eden, then it was promised to Abraham after the fall, after it was ruined, then it was pursued in Israel, then prophesied, and then we'll, we'll go to the New Testament. Let me just start here with the Old Testament. God planted Adam and Eve in the garden, Right? He planted the kingdom of God. God's, God's rule and reign was there planted in the Garden of Eden. All they had to do was enjoy all the fruit, enjoy a perfect marriage with no sin, and enjoy family and spread throughout the earth. That's all they had to do. Just enjoy God and life. Hard, hard job to do. I mean, to enjoy life with no curse, no sin, no crying, no tears. Paradise. That's all they had to do is enjoy paradise with God. But you know that they didn't do that. God gave them one command, don't eat from one fruit, and they did. And just in case you are tempted to be self-righteous toward Adam and Eve, I don't think you or I would have done better, just to be fair to Adam and Eve, our first grandparents. So they profaned the kingdom of God through disobeying God, and so God kicked them out of His land. The kingdom of God seemed to be ruined. I thought God's rule and design is going to be over and through His people in the world, but now they ruined it. It's profaned. But then God promises to Abraham 
I'm, through your offspring, I'm going to build a nation, and I'm going to give them a land. I'm going to bring them back to a land, and they will, my rule and reign, and now it's a curse, now that there's a curse, my curse-reversing, sinner-saving reign will be over this people and through this people to all nations, and I'll put them in my promised land. It was promised to Abraham. And so the people were in Egypt, Abraham's grandchildren, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, Israel, his descendants are the nation of Israel. We find them in Egypt in slavery. And so what God does is He takes them out of Egypt and He brings them to the promised land. And they have a kingdom set up there. King David is their king. And then King Solomon is their king. And they have kings from David's line. And what do they try to do there? They try to pursue the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is pursued. It's pursued by the nation. It's pursued by the kings. They try to pursue and live out this kingdom of God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule in Israel, over them and through them to the nations. Do they do a good job? No, the kingdom is profaned again. They break the covenant, the Israelic covenant that God gave through Moses to Israel. And just like Adam and Eve disobeyed the promise and the command in the Garden of Eden, Israel, God's covenant nation, disobeyed the promise and command of God in the promised land. And so they too profaned the kingdom and were kicked out. Is that the end of the story? Is God's kingdom ruined forever? No. God promises, or the next thing would be the kingdom prophesied. God prophesies that one day there will be a king to come, and he will rule and reign, and he will save his people, and he will die for their sins, and he will be born of a virgin, and he will save his people, and they will be a blessing to the nations. So the kingdom is prophesied. Well, then Jesus comes. This is the New Testament now. And the kingdom is performed. Jesus actually performs the kingdom. He accomplishes it. He performs it through his life. He lives a perfect life. He starts doing miracles. He exercises power over demons and sickness and death and brokenness in this world. So he, he raises people. He disciples people. But then he gets punished on a cross and he dies for sinners. He gets crucified on a cross, though he never sins. The only person who never desired, um, profaned God, who never ruined the kingdom, is the one who gets exiled from the kingdom. This, just in case you're wondering if you're not a Christian, this is the main message of Christianity. The main message of, the Christian, Christi of Christianity is about Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, thank you for coming this morning. Here's God's message to you. Jesus came to this world to live the life we should have lived. He performed the kingdom of God that we failed to perform. We deserve death and damnation and hell for our sins, condemnation. Yet Jesus came, and though he performed all that God told him to do, fulfilling all righteousness, he was crushed, he was punished, he was damned and condemned on the cross. So that sinners like you and I can repent from our sins, turn from our sins by the power of the Holy Spirit, trust in Jesus, and be saved. That's what Jesus did. And Jesus is inviting you, if you're not a Christian, this morning to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus and to be saved. Well, when Jesus died for our sins, he didn't just stay dead. He what? He rose again. He rose on the third day, on the Lord's day. He rose on a Sunday, on the Lord's day. That's why we're gathered here, right? He rose on the first Lord's day there, and he accomplished the mission. And that's why Revelation 12, 10 says, the, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, the kingdom has now come. Because the accuser of our, our, of our brothers and sisters who, who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. So the kingdom comes, Satan is thrown out of heaven when Christ dies, rises, and ascends back to heaven. The kingdom is performed. 
Is that where the story stops with Jesus in heaven? No. The kingdom is not only performed, it is now present. It's present in who? When Jesus goes to heaven, does that mean God is no longer working on this earth? Is God working on this earth? Through who? Through the Holy Spirit in who? In the church. At Pentecost, right? And so, so God is now, the kingdom is present through the church. The sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God is over God's people. Jesus goes to heaven, the Holy Spirit dwells in people, and now that rule is over God's people, and it goes through God's people as they share the gospel again and again and again and again and again. So the kingdom of God is present, and it's being populated as we keep sharing the gospel and people repent from their sins and trust in Christ and endure to the end. And so that is the story of the Bible, at least up until today. Now in church history, let me just give you a real brief thing on church history. So after the apostles die, the church continues, right? The church continues, and they have debates. They have a debate about the Trinity. Is God three, or is he one? Well, he's both. Three persons, one God. That's the Council of Nicaea in 325. The church debates it. They go back to their Bible. What does the Bible say about God? And the church realizes Jesus is God, and he is man, but he is God. And so they fight that out, but they realize that there is a God three in one, and that is our God, and that's what the Bible teaches, and that Jesus is fully God and fully man, or truly God and truly man. And then that's around 325 and 381 um, AD when the church is battling this out, and then you go a thousand years later to Martin Luther, and this is in the context of the Western church and Roman Catholicism. Martin Luther is reading his Bible, and he rediscovers what Christians throughout the ages have discovered but he kind of lights the fire. God uses him to light the fire. He discovers that God accepts sinners not by how good you are, but by faith alone in Christ alone. Not by your works, not by doing the church sacraments and ordinances, not by doing the Lord's Supper and getting baptized. That's not how you are saved. God accepts sinners not by cleaning up their own lives. He accepts sinners who repent from their sin and trust in Jesus. They're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Again, if you're not a Christian, God is not saying, clean up your life first to come to me. He's saying, come to me right now. I will forgive you and change you. So Martin Luther just, you know, rediscovers that and popularizes that. And he says, you know what? It's not church tradition that rules the church. It's God's scripture alone is the final authority. So you're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. And it's according to the scripture alone, the Bible alone as the final authority. And then you have the churches say, well, then we don't need bishops. So some churches stop having bishops. And then they have a presbyteries that kind of rule over the churches with elders and a bunch of churches. And then congregationalists say, no, no, every church should be autonomous. Every church should be independent. So you have congregationalism that, that goes from there. And then from there, some others say, no, 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 you know, yes, we should be congregational, but we shouldn't baptize babies. Members of the church should only be those who are actually born again, who actually profess faith in Christ. And so there are people who say, we're congregational, but we'll only baptize believers, and only the believers who are baptized are members of the church. And so you have the Baptist churches that start from there. And that leads us here to 1949 at Bethany Baptist Church. So God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule is going through history, and it comes to us in 1949. Now let me give you a brief history. I encourage you to talk to, talk to Barbara and Jerry um, in particular if you want to know more about that. They've been members here for a long time, and they know a lot of history, and I encourage you to ask them questions. But let me just give you a brief history of our church. It is our 70th anniversary. So I want to take time here. We don't get much time to do these things, so I want to take time here to recount God's grace in this church. Do you know the story of our church? Some of you do if you've been to the members class, but you might not remember it. 
because the members class covers a lot of different things. So let me recap for you guys. Okay. In 1949, 1948, First Southern Baptist Church of Long Beach decided they had a bunch of members in Bellflower and said, you know what? We need to start a Sunday school in Bellflower. So they start a Sunday school here, which eventually becomes a church plant, not an official church yet. They called, they called it missions in those days. It was a mission. And so there was a mission here in Bellflower, a church plant, and um, they started teaching Sunday school here and teaching the kids, and it became a church plant in late 1948. In 1949, on March 13th, 1949, 70 years ago, and four days, 70 years ago, they, uh, 15, members of, 15 members of First Southern Baptist Church of Long Beach came with letters in their hand saying that they're members in good standing. And they gathered together in a room, and they, they talked about the articles of faith, what do we believe as a group, a church covenant, how do we agree to live together as a church, and then they all shared their testimonies, and they all questioned each other about their testimonies. They did membership interviews is what they did. They were asking each other their stories. So they all heard each other's testimonies and asking each other questions. Then they all agreed together, we will hold each other accountable as a church family. We will be responsible for each other's discipleship. And so they agreed on that together. They agreed on the statement of faith. They agreed on a church covenant. They agreed on each other being part of this church as 15 members of the church. Then a, a missionary named Milton E. Cunningham gave the first sermon that night in that meeting. I'm not sure if it was night, actually, or morning, but that day. And then their first mission offering, you know what their off first offering was? $20.91, the first mission offering, March 13, 1949. Eventually, this church had to debate, well, what's our name going to be called? So they had two names in the church membership meeting, Friendship Baptist Church and Bellflower Baptist Church. Should we be Friendship Baptist Church or should we be Bellflower Baptist Church? The, the members meeting, you know, the members debated. And then another member said, can we throw a third name in there? What about Bethany Baptist Church? All right, fine, put Bethany Baptist Church on the ballot. So Bethany Baptist Church is put on the ballot. And so now they have to vote between those three names. And you know who, which name won? Bethany Baptist Church. The dark horse name out of, out of the side, you know, came, coming out of nowhere. And so the church decided on Bethany Baptist Church as the name of the church in 1949. And so this church was called Bethany Baptist Church. Um, they built this building that we're sitting in in 1953, four years after. Um, and then they this church planted Paramount Southern Baptist Church in 1953. In 1955, this church planted First Southern Baptist Church of Lakewood. And then, one of the notes of one of the church members in the records, it reads this way. Dear Floyd, and I don't know who Floyd is, but dear Floyd, here's the most exciting news we could have. Another one of our missions, church plants, organized into a New Testament church. They covenanted together. Organized into a New Testament church as we try to keep up the pace of one a year. The following is the minutes of the organization. This church family tried to plant one church a year in the 50s. That was their goal. That's amazing. It wasn't just about this church. It's about planting other churches. Paramount. You know, um, what's the other city? Lakewood. And then in 1956, they, ordered, they, they sent some members to South, to Southwest Bellflower on the border of Bellflower Lakewood. And they called that church Bellwood Baptist Church. That church is still here today. The other two churches died. But that church is still here. Bellwood Baptist Church in Bellflower. In 1957, it became a church plant, a, a, a New Testament church. 
And then in this church, in 1959, this church said, you know what? Uh, they decided on, March, on April 8, 1959, to change the name from Bethany Baptist Church to First Southern Baptist Church of Bellflower. There were two dissenting votes in that vote. The education building was built in 1963. Um, in 1967, Sam Jones became the church's fourth pastor, uh, fourth pastor, and it was a position he would hold for 11 years. Under Pastor Jones, the membership role here grew to 950 people, with its peak being 559 resident members and 391 non-resident members. Now, this church, and you'll see pictures there, the church has had 10 pastors and 7 interim pastors. Now, there's more records than I, I didn't read all the minutes, but I, at least in the minutes I read, I found that the church has ordained two pastors, at least two pastors, and at least six deacons, but there's more records to be read, and they're in the library if you want to read them. Um, so that, that's kind of the history of the church. In, nine, in 2004, just to give recent history, in 2014, I became the pastor of the church in November 2014. The church voted on me in September of 2014. I became the pastor here. Then we had 53 members on an active role, and we had between 40 to 60 members in attendance back then. Some of you remember those days. You remember those days, 2014? Not having a pastor for about a year and a half or so, and then, um, yeah, so there are between 40 to 60 on the active role, and then um, back then, on the, I said active role, because on the inactive role, as, you know, as people here infamously know, there was, um, by the time I counted it six months later, there were 1,096 names. On the, on the role of our church. And it blew, ballooned because people were joining our church. It got up to 1,109 members in our church role. This church changed its name back to Bethany Baptist Church in March 2017. Our church currently has 80 members, though we do have some who are coming in. And Paul and Kelly Barrick just joined their other church, so we're going to be voting to transfer them um, in our next meeting. So I think we'll still have about 80 or 81, depending. Um, so we have about 80 members now, and our our membership role is clean, and the church now, today, has the task that the church has always had, to disciple Southeast Los Angeles, to disciple our neighbors and the nations, and to do it together for God's glory. That's the story of Bethany Baptist Church. Okay, so let's get, let's get to some Bible here. What does that mean for us with the Bible? If that's the story of the church, where do we fit in this? Every Christian, every Christian wants to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Every Christian wants to lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth, right? You want to do that, right? So how do you do that? You do that by investing your life and expending your life for God's glory. We want to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that our labor is not in vain. But what if we make the wrong investment? What if we invest in the wrong thing with our lives? Dave Ramsey financial guru, he tells a story about saving for retirement. And he gives a story of two guys named Arthur and Ben, ironically. Um, <laughs> I didn't notice that. So at age 19, our, uh, Ben and Arthur grew up together, but Ben decides at age 19 he's going to invest $2,000 every year for the next eight years in his retirement. He picks investment funds that average about 12% interest rate. Then at age 26, Ben stops putting money in. So he puts $16,000 in for eight years, right? That's what he does. And he never puts another penny in his retirement fund or in his investments, I'm sorry. Arthur now doesn't start investing until age 27, his friend. But just like Ben, he puts $2,000 every year, but he does it every year from age 27 to 65. He gets the same interest rate as Ben, 
and he invests for the 31 more years. So Ben puts in, Ben, Ben puts in 16,000 for eight years. Arthur puts in 78,000 for 39 years. When they both turn 65 and they decide to compare their investments, who has more money? Ben, who invested 16 grand, or Arthur, who invested 78 grand over 39 years? The answer is Ben comes out ahead by $700,000. Arthur had a total of 1.5 million. Ben had a total of 2.2 million, almost 2.3 million. How did he do it? Starting early is the key, Dave Ramsey says. He put less money in, but he started eight years earlier. And as interest in increases, you, 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 you make your interest work for you. In other words, he put his interest in, and so he made the right investment while Arthur waited too long. And though he still got something, he did the wrong investment. Now, Dave Ramsey says, and I, I feel this every time I tell the story, you wish, how many of you wish you were 19 right now? <laughs> not how old you are right now, right? But you're not. <laughs> For a lot of us, I, I'm hearing this in mid-30s. I'm like, ah, oh, why didn't I hear this earlier? You know, Dave Ramsey says, no one should graduate high school without knowing this story. You should all know this before you turn 19. But that's not my point here. My point here is if you invest in the wrong place, you might live to regret it. If you don't invest in the right place, you might live to regret it. So how do you know if you're investing money, not for your age 65 retirement, but for heavenly treasures? When, we, when we're all standing, all of us who are Christian are standing in heaven or the new earth and we're looking back at our lives, how will we live in such a way now that we know we made the right investment and not the wrong investment? The answer is not always clear. What if God has been clearly telling us what we should be investing our lives in and we're missing it? I want to clarify you, to you this morning what the investment is you should be making and where you should be investing. And here it is. Here's my main goal. The main goal is this. Move your church and change the world. Move your church and change our world. The, the place, the people, the group you should be investing your life in is your local church. Invest in your local church. And I'm not talking about this building. I'm not talking about the budget or those types of things, the administration. I'm talking about look at the people, the members of this church. Invest your life in this family, and you will change the world. And I would say that to any Christian, any, invest in your, your church family, not, not this church, whichever church family you're part of. If you're a guest here from another church, invest your life in your church family. That's the investment you should make, that when you get to heaven, you're going to be glad you made that investment relationally with your time, and with your relationships. Why? I want to give you four reasons why. Why this is what you should do. What is a church? A church is a group of Christians, of Christ's followers gathered around him, who exercise responsibility for each other's discipleship, both collectively and individually. Okay, it's a group of Christ's followers gathered around him to exercise responsibility over each other's discipleship, collectively and individually. Why should you invest in that group? For four reasons, four truths here to help you invest in this church. I want to convince you to invest your life in, in the local church. And if you transfer to another church, go invest in that church. So we're not BBC-centered, but I'm, I'm arguing that you should be local church-centered. Reason number one, the church is central to your communal life. The church is central to your communal life. The church is central to your communal life. It is not good for man to be alone. So God made more image bearers. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone, so he made another image bearer. And the answer is not marriage for people who are alone. 
The answer is other image bearers so you can be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, you, if you're going to multiply biologically, then you need to get married so you can have intimacy and have babies. But that's not the only way to multiply in our world. If you're going to multiply God's glory, you make disciples. It's not good for man to be alone. God gave you other people so that together you can invest your lives for eternity by multiplying and making disciples. Because God told the original image bearers, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. You need to understand this. If the church is central to your communal life, listen to me, brothers and sisters, your family is not the center of your communal life. Your marriage is not the center of your communal life, biblically speaking. The church is the center of your communal life. Let me tell you why. Listen to Mark 3. You can turn there if you want. Mark, now we're going to start jumping around now. So hang on here. Mark 3, 31. Mark 3, 31. Jesus says this, or it says, His mothers, Jesus' mothers and brothers came standing outside, and they sent word to Jesus and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you, your family. Jesus replied to them, Who are my mother and brother? Who are my mother and brothers? Looking at those sitting in the circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother and sister. Who is Jesus' family? His biological family? No. Who? Those who do the will of God. It was those who are following Jesus. Those who are trusting in Jesus was his more central family. Not, I'm not saying neglect your biological family. We're going to get to that in a second. But you need to know if you're following Jesus that your church family, your Christian family, is more central to your communal life than your biological family, even your marriage. So, the, ch the church family is the center of sharing life and sharing Jesus. Now, we are called to serve our family. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husband. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6. If, you, if, you, if a man doesn't provide for his own household, he is worse than a, a what? An unbeliever, or the King James says, an infidel. Yeah, I like that word. You're worse than an infidel if you don't take care of your home. So, should you take care of your home and your biological family? Absolutely. You can't shirk that responsibility. But is that family central to your communal life as a Christian? No. So then what, what, what do we do with it? Well, me being a good husband and father trains me to be a good church member. If I learn how to be a good father and, and brother and son to my parents, as I learn to be a good family member, I'm learning to be a good church family member. And, and as, I, as I learn skills there, social skills, I'm taking those social skills, adding it with the Bible as my driving force of seeking first God's kingdom, and now in the church, I'm able to take those social skills I learn at home, plus the Bible, and actually do what I'm made to do, which is what we're all made to do, make disciples of all nations. So we need the home. You need to not neglect your family because that is the training ground for how you live the rest of your life for God's glory. And yet at the same time, and then, and then not only that, but when you are growing in the church family, it helps you in your marriage. It helps you in your parenting. It helps you in your honoring your parents and your siblings and your cousins and your uncles and aunts and your extended family. So being a good church member helps your family, and being part of your family at home helps your ministry in the church. They go together. They feed off of each other. And yet, yet the, the core of it I would say the core family, according to Jesus here, is your church family, but you need both. You learn to love in your family, and then you learn to love your church family through that, 
And then as a church family, you learn to love your neighbors together as you love yourselves. So it's not an issue of choosing between home and church. You don't have the luxury of choosing between the two. You have to be faithful to both. And yet, you need to, not, you need to know the, the purposes of both and keep those clear in your mind so that you grow. I was shown, personally, um, just this past Friday. I'll give you a, a recent illustration from my life. This past Friday, I was shown my sin and my broken ways of talking to my wife when some of the members were at our house for dinner on Friday, and we are sharing, and we are talking about an unkind exchange I had with my wife previous weeks. And um, I couldn't see that on my own. Even if my wife tells me, I'm just stubborn like that and blind, but to see other church members also say something, that helps, right? It makes me a better husband, hopefully. And if I become a better husband and I'm growing there, it's going to help me be a better church member to you guys and a better pastor. You see how the two feed off of each other? Our marriages are insufficient for growth. They're helpful, they're necessary if you are married, but they're insufficient. Your families, your parents and children and cousins and aunts and uncles, they're not sufficient for your spiritual thriving, but they're necessary. They feed into each other. You need to have both. So I'm telling you, if you're going to invest your life properly, don't neglect the church. The church is central to your communal life. It's not an ad- additional op- option. God doesn't need to use the church. He doesn't need us to fulfill the aloneness of each other. But God wants us to. Isn't that neat? That we have everyone here, even those who are richly blessed with friends and family, all of us feel lonely at times. And God says, I'm going to use the church family to help people fight their aloneness. So move your church and change the world because the church is central. Secondly, it's central to your communal life. Secondly, the church is central to, the, to your evangelism. Or let me put it this way. The church is central to the kingdom of God's contact with the world. Where, where the kingdom of God and the world meet, at that point of meeting, guess what's right there in the center of that? The local church. The local church is the central point of meeting before, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It's right at the center of the meeting spot, the conflict. The neighborhood is best served by hearing the gospel. Faith comes by what? Hearing the word of Christ. And so how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless someone is sent? And how will they, so who sends? The church sends. And we send each other. Every Sunday we send each other off to preach the gospel. So the church scattered at your workplaces, online, at home, at school, you're sent there, but you are the local church, sent there. And you gospelize wherever God sends you. But the point of contact between the world and, and the kingdom of God is the local church scattered and even gathered as we gospelize. So Matthew 5, 3 through 16, we've learned about this, being poor in spirit, being humble, being gentle, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mourning over our sin, um, being pure in heart, being merciful and compassionate to those in need as we love our neighbors. And then it says being peacemakers. Now, there's a problem when you're a peacemaker. When you're a peacemaker, you try to make peace between two, two people, and one of those parties doesn't want to make peace, guess what they do with you? Are they peaceful towards you? No, they'll make war on you. They're like fighting each other, and they have their guns pointed at each other, and you try to make peace, and they don't like peace. Where, where do they point the gun? <laughs> they point it at you. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. But right after that, he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, for my sake. Because I'm sending you with this kingdom mindset to be the kingdom, to, to um, be the channel of the kingdom of God in this world. And as you try to make peace with people, with God and with each other, people are going to get angry at you. And you'll get persecuted and opposed. And you're blessed. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. 
And so shine your light. But my point here is that the church is the center of this. Why is the church the center of this? Turn to John 13. One passage for this point. John 13. To the right in your Bible. John 13, 34 and 35. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 957. John 13, 34 and 35 says this. Jesus said, I give you a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, by your love for each other, church, all men will know that you're my what? My disciples, if you love one another. What is the proof to the world that you're a true Christian? Your love for who? One another. Your love for the church. Your love for the church shows the world that they need Jesus. Look at John 17, 21. It's right there. Turn to the right in your Bible, just a few pages to the right. Page 960 in the Pew Bible, John 17, 21, says this. May they all be one, may all the Christians be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that as they're one, as they're one together as a church, so that the world may what? Believe that you sent me, that they might believe that I am the Messiah, the Savior of the world. How does the world believe that Jesus came to save them from their sins? By your unity as a church, by your love for each other. The point of contact between the gospel we preach to the world and the kingdom of God is the people of God not only preaching the gospel, but loving each other. Loving each other. When the world sees our love for each other, then they are more, they, then they have more understanding of what the gospel is that we're talking about and why it's more convincing. For example, if a coworker named Philip met a Christian named James at work, and he likes James because James is winsome, James is loving, James is thoughtful, but you know what's strange about James? He's firm in his Christian faith. And you know what Philip says? You know, he says, you know what, James? Um, you're, I like you a lot. I don't like Christians, but I like you. I think you're cool. I mean, a lot of Christians are just way out there, but you're different. And so I like you, and um, if all Christians were like you, then I might, you know, that would be a, the world would be a better place. But a lot of Christians are judgmental or hypocritical or whatever, but not like you, James. So James says, oh, yeah, that's cool. And then James invites Philip over for dinner at his house. And he has, you know, five or seven other church members there. And then Philip starts tripping out. He's just like, wait, there's another one like James. And that's another one like James. Wait, he's cool too. And wait, she's not mean. Wait, and look at the way they love each other. And what do they have in common? These people are just from different backgrounds. Why are they here together as a family? And all of a sudden, Philip starts to think, wait, is this gospel true? Is Jesus really? I mean, what's the explanation for what's going on here? What just happened? The love of the church for each other was the central point of contact between the world and the kingdom of God. So it's not just your individual evangelism and your personal friendships. It's as you introduce people to Christian community, they start to see that things are different here. This is what isn't helpful. I mean, we're going to talk about parachurch organizations next, but um, you can have Bible studies at your work or whatever, but when everyone's the same profession or the same stage of life, um, that, doesn't, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't amaze the world. Of course you guys are all together because you're all, you know, you're all into snowboarding. So it's like a snowboarder's fellowship or whatever. Okay, great. But when you have nothing else in common but Jesus, there's no other explanation except who? Jesus, right? I mean, that's your only explanation. And so you take non-Christians to these places to meet other Christians who are not like you and they just trip out. I thought you were the only one. I guess that's how all Christians are. He might even start to imagine maybe I could be a Christian. Okay, so what does this mean for us as a church family? 
Brothers, when you gospelize your neighbors, keep connected to the church family. Share your prayer requests. You have any non-Christian family or friends that you're trying to gospelize? Email the church. Share it on a Sunday night in our gathering. Let us know how we can pray for each other and support each other. Are you stumped by hard questions? Ask people. Get some help. Get some resources here. As a church family, let's not just engage individually. Let's engage together. Let's, let's love each other and be in each other's homes and, and share life together and invite non-Christians to see our love for each other. The world will try to change our message, but they can't deny true love when they see it. So let's keep preaching the true message and let's keep loving each other for the sake of the world. Now here's the, here's the crazy thing. Does God need us to reach the world? Does he need Bethany Baptist Church to reach this world and reach Los Angeles? Does he need our church? No, he's powerful, right? He could do it without us. And yet... God desires for Bethany Baptist Church to embody Christ to reach a needy and dying Los Angeles. Isn't that amazing that God wants you? He wants you, Bethany Baptist Church. He wants to use you. He doesn't need to use us, but He wants to use us together. What a privilege. So the church is central to your communal life. The church is central to evangelism or to our contact with the world. Thirdly, the church is central to affecting other Christians and churches. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Actually, I'm actually just going to give you the, the basic point. And here's the basic point. Do we, can, is it possible for us to grow and get edification and spiritual insight outside of our local church? Yes or no? Is that possible? Yes. Should we do it? Yes, right? So whether it's online, you're, you're listening to radio, you know, you're reading a book from an author who's not from this church. I, I don't know if we have any authors in this church who've written books on Christian growth. Um, you're, so you're reading books that are from outside the church. Should you grow from these things? There's parachurch ministries. Should you take advantage of those things? Yes. But here's my point. The church is central to affecting broader Christianity. It's more important than radio ministries. It's more important than websites. It's more important than parachurch groups. It's more important than books that are written about Christianity. The church is, the local church, is the most important instrument in influencing broader Christian society and other Christians in other churches. Now, why is that the case? Is that true? I mean, books go everywhere. A radio, a radio ministry, you know, a TV show, it covers, it covers everywhere. Why, why is the church central to affecting other Christians in other churches and around the world. Well, ideally, a local church should be holding us accountable, right? To our Christian faith, right? And ideally, the local church should be affirming our salvation through baptism and communion. We don't let anyone ba get baptized or take communion. It's only those who have a credible profession of faith and are members of it, you know, and want to commit to God's people in the church who believe the gospel. But the church also trains each other. And, and so he, here's, here's, my, here's the argument. You could look at Ephesians 4, 12 through 16 later. I'm not going to do it now. I'll give you an analogy, though. The church is the deepest place to shape a Christian. You know why? Because you could fake it in this church or in any church for a, for a while, but when you see each other every week, week in and week out, year in and year out, being fake, it's tiring, right? You can put up a facade if you're here once in a while, but if you're going to be here all the time, eventually the real you is going to come out, right? Just like at home, you know, when you like let yourself loose and that's the real you. That happens in church, too, when you're here regularly. But it, that's the only place where we can really hold Christians accountable to their profession of faith. You could be on a radio ministry, but no one knows you personally, right? You could, have a, you could write a book, but no one knows you personally. You could be part of a parachurch ministry somewhere where you're part of a group that's reaching out to your coworkers, and that's great. But no one really can see your Christian life day in and day out and holds you accountable and even excommunicate you if you disobey. There's only one place that does that. Where's that? The local church. 
So the local church is the place of deepest discipleship. And that's why you, you influence Christians everywhere. Because it's, it's the place where you go deepest in your Christian discipleship and formation. And the more Christians that are deeply discipled, the more they affect the world. Let me, let me give you an analogy here. Parents, let me encourage you. Any parents of young children, let me give you some encouragement because you're tired this morning and every morning, right? Let me encourage you. Your parenting of the children in your home is the deepest social development they will ever have. And if you socially develop them, that makes the biggest impact, socially speaking, in this world. So it's like, well, I want to make a social impact, so let me, let me go rally over here and, and go call this politician and do this. I'm not saying you shouldn't do any of those good causes. Do those other good causes. But the deepest way you're going to affect this world socially is by discipling your kids socially in the home. That's the deepest place of formation. You do that there, and then you send your grown children out into the world, and that's how you change the world socially. By, by forming your kids in the home. Why is that, why is that the most impactful? Because that's the deepest formation of a human being. Now, what I'm saying is the deepest formation of a Christian human being is where? It's the church. So if you want to shape Christians who go out to affect other Christians and write books and do all those other things, the deepest way you're going to affect the broader Christian evangelical movement is by forming your church. Move your church and you change the world. It doesn't seem significant when you keep changing diapers in, home, in a home, Right? Keep disciplining the kid for the thousandth time over the same thing. But you're changing the world because they're going to be sent out there. It doesn't seem like a big deal when you rebuke each other. You sing a song that you don't even like, right? So, and I know some people like some songs, other people like other songs in the church. That's just how it goes in a church. And you're like, what, what good is it? I'm just singing a song. What good is it? It's good because other people are hearing it and they're being ministered to. And you're deepening their discipleship. And they're going to leave this place and they're going to affect other people. You move the church, you change the world. And you change the broader Christian movement. Okay, that's the that's third reason. And the fourth reason, so uh, it's, a place, it's a center of communal formation, it's the uh, communal life, it's the center of contact with the world, it's the center of changing the broader Christian world, and the fourth reason why you should move your church and focus there, invest your life there, is because the local church is central to missions. The local church is central to missions. We're all about missions. The point of what we do here is so that every unreached ethnic people group in the world would hear the gospel. Because Jesus said, go therefore and disciple all ethnic people groups. And it says in Revelation 7 that everyone from every tribe, or not everyone, but people from every tribe, tongue, nation, will come before the throne and worship the Lamb. Every ethnic people group will, will be represented there. So we want to affect the world. We don't want to just stay in L.A. because L.A., it's English-speaking, and a lot of English speakers know the gospel. What about the places where there's no gospel witness at all? How do we reach them? The best way to affect missions is to invest in your local church. Why? Why not just go to a missions conference? It's good to have a missions conference. Why is it best to do it in a local church? Here's my answer to that. Well, what's the goal of missions? The goal of missions is crossing a cultural and geographical barrier to start a healthy church that will continue to grow on its own. The missionaries that the church sends will disciple people and start a church there. And you know what those, those uh, missionaries do? You know who those missionaries are largely shaped by? By who? Their local what? Their local church. Let me just give you a brief example. Baptists in the 1920s, 19-teens and 1920s, Baptists came to the northern part of the Philippines. And so they, they reached the northern part of the Philippines with the gospel. Now, I grew up and got saved in West Covina. The pastor there was discipled by the Baptist missionaries, or like two generations down, of the Baptist missionaries who came to the Philippines in the 19-teens and 1920s. So when I grew up at 
at my church in West Covina, we were doing all the Baptist practices, but we didn't know why. We would, we would say, like, only members can take communion, those who've been baptized. And, I, and when we're reading the Bible, we're like, where does it say that in the Bible? You know, and stuff like that. And it was like, well, that's what the Baptists do, so that's what we do. Here's my point. Why did the church in West Covina, a Filipino church in West Covina, why were they doing Baptist things? Where were they shaped by? They were shaped by the missionaries in the Philippines. And where are the Philippines missionaries, who were, there, who were they shaped by? The local church where? In America that sent them. You see how what you did, what the, what the pastors and churches did in the 19, before 19-teens and in the late 1890s, what they did in their churches affected those missionaries that affected the mission in the Philippines that affected my life growing up in West Covina in the 1980s and 90s. Where, do those, where, where does the ripple effect of the missions and the church practice come from? The local church. It comes from here. I met with a missionary recently, and I asked him, what is your definition of a local church? What do you think about how a church should be organized? Why do I ask those questions? Because if you're going to be a missionary, you're going you're to do what you believe, and your belief is going to affect people groups for generations to come. So if you want to affect missions well, you want healthy churches planted. You want healthy churches planted, you need healthy churches here. And you don't have healthy churches here if you don't have members who are centralizing their lives and investing in their local church. So you have a heart for missions? You want healthy churches planted overseas? Then devote your life to the local church. Invest here. This is the biggest place, the best place, the central place to shape world missions. Does God need us to reach all ethnic people groups? Does He need Bethany Baptist Church? Does He, does he need our church? No, He doesn't need our church. Does He want to use our church, though? Yes. What a privilege. We get to participate in God's mission. And we don't have to, we don't have to figure out, oh, let me, let me study all these things to figure out how best to invest my life. It's simple. Very simple if you want to invest your life for eternity. Invest your life in your local church. Because when you move your church, you change the world. You change the world. So what's my closing applications here? If you're not a Christian, join a church. doesn't have to be this one. We'd love for you to join this one. But even if it's not this one, join a local church and devote your life to it. Secondly, Christians, members here, and if you're a Christian from another church, exercise responsibility for each other's discipleship. Have a sense that what goes on in other people's lives is partly your responsibility. Don't be like Cain, who when he murdered his brother and God said, where's your brother? Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that is what? Yes. If you are a member of a church, you are your brother and sister's keeper. You are responsible for their discipleship. Have a sense of that. Take the membership list and pray for them. Check in on them. Bear each other's burdens together. Attend the gatherings. Pray for each other. Come on Sunday night and pray together. Give to the church's mission. Coordinate life together in, in serving each other. Share your needs and meet each other's needs. One of the barriers for us in our church to sharing needs is we're embarrassed, right? We love to meet needs because we want to be humbly, humble and serve. But you know it also takes humility to share your needs so that other people can meet your needs? That takes humility as well. It's pride to not share our needs when we really need something. So share your needs. Uh, next, I'll say, just as a way of application, participate in church polity. Do you know we have members meetings in this church? We have members meetings in this church, and when we have a members meeting, the church makes decisions. Who's going to be a member? Who's not going to be a member? Our church constitution, what we're going to do with our money. Don't just be a member here who doesn't come to these things. If you're going to move the church to change the world, be at the members meetings every other month. 
at this church. That's where decisions are made. And whether you're there or not, the decisions you're accountable for on Judgment Day. So you better be like, well, you better come and know what's going on because when our church makes decisions, if we make the wrong decision and you're a member here, you're still accountable. So be here for the decisions that we make as a church. And then, and you brothers and sisters do a good job at this. I'm not using this to chastise you. But support and spur on your leaders. Support and spur on your leaders in the church. When you, Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them because they keep watch over your souls and let them do this with joy, not with grief, because that wouldn't be advantageous for you. When you have unhappy leaders, you have unhappy churches <laughs> oftentimes because they're grumpy and cranky and they spread that grumpiness and crankiness everywhere. So when you're supportive of your leaders, that doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable. If they sin, confront them. But when you, when you support them and you, you encourage them, it, it blesses the whole church. And so at our church, we need to recognize new leaders even, deacons, deaconesses, and maybe even elders if, if, the, if the constitution passes. Okay, let's close. To close, why do you need to move the church and change the world? Because the church is central to your communal life. The church is central to your evangelism. The church is central to, to influencing other Christians outside of this church and broader evangelical culture. And the church is central to missions. So, brothers and sisters, here's a very practical application, closing application. Think of a member in this church that you don't know that well and invest in a relationship with them. You already have other relationships at this church, but think of someone you don't know that well. Invest in a relationship with them. Pray for them a little bit more regularly. Have a burden for them and just say, you know what? I don't know this guy, if you're a guy, or if you're a female. I don't know that female. I'm going to invest in them, though. So pick someone that you don't know and just start praying for them and asking God how you can be a blessing to them. If everyone in our church did that, would that, would that shift our church and help our church big time? It absolutely would. So invest in another relationship in this church that you don't currently have deep, deep in your, in your life. If you don't do this, we're going to continue to grow inward, inward, we'll stay comfortable, and we won't be useful to the Lord. But if we invest in another relationship at this church, we'll expand our love, we'll expand our joy, and we will broaden our impact for eternity. We'll invest in the right place because we're investing in our people. What does this mean for Bethany Baptist Church? I give you our 70 years of history. What about the next 70? I, I quote to you a song. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far for 70 years. Tis grace that will lead us home. Amazing grace. That is, that's what we need. So for us at this church, it means thinking about our constitution, thinking about our church confession, I'll tell you what's our next five years in this church, or our next one year in this church, if you want to focus well. We need to recognize leaders. We need to focus on our children and our future youth ministry. We don't have a high school group right now, but you blink, and we'll have a bunch of high schoolers in this church. Look at all these kids, right? We need a youth ministry, youth leaders, city groups reaching their neighbors, loving our neighbors in Bellflower, missions, Shepherd LA to bless other churches in Los Angeles, training and raising up other members and other future pastors through our internship program and other ways, that's what we need to do because the kingdom of God is coming in this world. It's here, it's over us, and it's through us in this world. It's present, it's populated, and one day it will be perfected when Christ comes again. So brothers and sisters, move this church. Change Los Angeles and change the world. And when we get to heaven, we'll look back on this short life we had and we'll thank God for these days with all the tears, all the pain, and all the joys. Let's pray. Father, take this word and hide it in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against you. Help us to keep the church 
central because Christ is central. Help us not to put the church over Jesus, but to love Jesus in and through the church. And then as a church family, help us to love our neighbors and tell others the good news that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead. And you are a God who loves to save sinners. Help us to teach this happy message to as many people as, you, as we can, together and individually. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.